Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. Today, we are joined by Michael, our resident Ephesiologist. I am Andrew Johnson from Houston, Texas, Associate Pastor at Neartown Church, and we are joined by the the famous, the infamous, somewhere in between, Daniel Yang. Uh, Daniel is the director of the Church Planting Leadership Forum. Do I have that correct, Daniel? Uh, you, yep, you have very leadership close. in there, so correct me on what I have missed already. So I, I direct the Church Multiplication Institute, and I help to right. facilitate the Church Planting Leadership uh, Fellowship, so... There, it's all in there. It's all in there. This is what happens when you get used to seeing acronyms and then not ever actually pressing what those very true. mean. So very true. Uh, we are very thankful that you are joining us today. Um, so for for anybody, I think for most of our listeners, they're familiar with maybe you or some of your work now or some of the work in the past, um, just because I think Michael and I know our crowd. Uh, for those who are coming upon this podcast and they have never heard you, Daniel, uh, what are some of the things that you get to do with Church Multiplication Institute? And uh, what are some of the most important things about yourself somebody should know? Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, Andrew, Michael, thanks for having me. And uh, Andrew, I've enjoyed getting to know you over the years. And then Michael, I just, you know, you, you've always been somebody that I've uh, learned from and some of the think tanks that uh, you've participated in, you've always been a huge part of the contribution. And so thanks for having me on again. Um, love the love the concept of uh, physiology. And uh, so what I do at the Church Multiplication Institute is uh, it's a think tank for church planning, specifically in North America, so U.S. and Canada in particular. And I work with church planning leaders, those who lead church planning organizations, um, so denominations, church planning networks. And really, we 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 uh, we convene leaders to think about best practices uh, and do a little bit of research. But then the research is really just to convene people, and part of it is to um, uh, yeah, part of it is to disseminate best practices, see who's doing what, and bring higher levels of collaboration amongst. You can imagine denominations sometimes have a hard time working together. So facilitating those relationships, but you know, also the, we we're looking into the future as well. And there aren't there aren't really you know best practices for the future, and so a lot of what we do through things like the Church Planning Leadership Fellowship and other things like our think tanks, is to just help those who are thinking about this every day to maybe be a little bit sharper and to have some of the uh, trends and realities in front of them, so they they can make better decisions as they're uh, training church planters and as they're talking about mission. Uh, to their constituency. So uh, that's that's what I do kind of as a job. It's a nonprofit um, and um, I'm not a prophet and I don't make a lot of profits. So that's the nature of probably <laughs> the work that the three of us do. Um, and then personally, my wife and I, uh, Linda, we have been married 23 years. We've got five children. We're here in Chicagoland and uh, we've been a part of personally uh, planting three churches and um, helping to mentor a group of young leaders right now, um, leading and planting a a, uh, a church of missional communities, a decentralized church here in Chicagoland. Okay. Well, I had like a, a previously set uh, uh, thought questions, but now I'm wondering how is that decentralized group of 
churches. How is that going? What are you learning just from, from your own church experience? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, so we started, um, my wife and I had been mentoring uh, uh, three couples uh, in their late 20s, early 30s. Uh, we're currently 43. And uh, this is about two and a half years ago in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, everybody was doing church decentralized to a certain degree, unless you were just streaming in services. But if you're doing any kind of meaningful interaction, you're probably meeting in some decentralized fashion. And so uh, we were uh, mentoring and discipling these three couples. And uh, so we started meeting uh, when we could um, uh, in person in small in living rooms, just like a house church uh, might. But then we started imagining like, what could we do during the pandemic? And specifically when, obviously, if you guys remember back to May 2020, the killing of George Floyd, it was the intersection of those two things that really formed um, the why behind why we were going to start a church. And that was to, number one, uh, help people to process some of the cultural upheaval that was people were experiencing. And then number two, to provide a place of community for those who were searching for that amid the pandemic. And so uh, that it started decentralized. And so we really started uh, in some ways uh, emphasizing engagement of neighbor and neighborhood and then the agility of meetings. And so imagining uh, meetings as engagements rather than like uh, gatherings. And so you would meet to engage in the park where you would meet to engage your neighbor next door. Um, and so that became in a sense, mission was the, you know, kind of the, the, the centering or the organizational, um, uh, principle organizing principle. Um, so not, not very dissimilar to missional communities that you may have been familiar of in the past, Soma communities. Um, but in the midst of that, it was just, you know, learning to be Jesus to our neighbors. And so along the way, uh, we started doing um, monthly training, equipping gatherings. And so time of worship, a time of training and equipping. And so we've been at that for about two and a half years. And, um, you know, it's been a really amazing experience for somebody who's planted two kind of prevailing model churches. This has definitely been challenging, but also very, very fun. Mm. Well, I want you to unpack that some more, Daniel, because... You know, I can remember right when the pandemic is breaking out, uh, you and Ed and a bunch of us, I guess, were on something, a webinar or seminar or something. And there there was a sense that I had from that of somewhat excitement that maybe God's doing something to kind of shake us up and to break us out of mm -hmm. the molds that we've been in. And uh, it started sounding kind of cool about what could happen and yet on the other side of the pandemic now, we're mm -hmm. realizing, oh, wait, it didn't really go like we thought maybe it would. <laughs> but what you're saying is that, gosh, something really cool did happen uh, it, it, as a result of the pandemic. And that your missional community sounds like that's a part of that. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, and, and this has been our learning journey to not try to pit like models against each other so hard because... I may have said this before, but we have we've we've been trying to emphasize agility. So, what does church agility look like? You know, think back to Bruce Lee when he's having his famous conversation on what is kung fu. You know, and what does he say? He says kung fu is like water, right? And so, it's this idea that kung fu, you know, it takes shapes. It's it's not like one thing. And uh, in some ways, we've been asking that question, like you know, and I'm I'm not an ecclesiologist or a, a church 
politist. I, I don't know if that's even a word. Um, so but can we make it one? Let's make it one. Sure. Let's yeah. make hey, it there's one. There's an ephesiologist, so why There's not? a lot of yeah. church politicians, but I don't know about a church politist. Politis- yeah. So anyways, um, so um, a part of it is my, my, my personal uh, sense that like um, – you can you can be the church without having like super rigid like rhythms and and uh, mm. and so um, uh, so learning to be comfortable with that was I think a big part of it. And you think back to again, think back to spring, summer, fall of twenty twenty. We all had to be agile, you know. Uh, even if you were the prevailing model, you still had to be agile because you were doing hybrid and you were like trying, you know, you know, testing coming back into the ga- into the building again. And then next week, COVID would break out and then you wouldn't meet again, right? That was the name of the game during that season. That's, right? that's like, what it was, it was. That was the great commonality. Yeah. And um, so we, we have carried that forward into this stage of post-pandemic, you know, uh, uh, where others may not have, because again, there's no, uh, like not saying one is better than the other, but I think there is a sense in which like for, for many people, especially those who had established churches, that that's very hard to do because you had a rhythm and you're trying to get back to a rhythm. We we didn't have a rhythm. We were trying to establish a rhythm. It doesn't mean that we don't need cadence. We do need cadence. Uh, but like, if you were to go to our website, there isn't like, you know, service happens at 1030 to like, there isn't that sense that, that, that happens. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, this past weekend we met uh, for a corporate kind of training and then also a Christmas lunch, and that happened at noon on Sunday. Sometimes it happens at 1030. Um, but again, redefining, you know, our missional communities around engagement and not just not not even like house gatherings or worship gatherings, but around engagement. And that's not been easy to do for everybody. Uh, not everybody who is coming into our missional communities has been comfortable with that because, um, you know, there isn't that like weekly cadence for people. Um, and so we're, we're learning, but I, I love Michael that you said that, you know, many of us sense that the, the pandemic was a time of shaking. And uh, honestly, there is a passage from Hebrews chapter 12 that was really powerful. It talks about, I think it's verses 26 and 27 about how uh, God is blowing on things and uh, he's removing things that are shaken so that the things that won't be shaken can remain, reminding us that his kingdom itself cannot be shaken. Um, and that's been, a, I think that's been a really uh, a great image for us. Like the things that aren't supposed to be around anyways, they're eventually going to fall off, but the things that will remain uh, are going to stick around. And we're starting to discover some of those things. So. Hmm. Well, unpack that a little bit for us, Daniel, because I'm fascinated by this idea of missional community. Uh, you're talking about yep. equipping and training times. Yeah. Uh, what does it look like practically? What, what does engagement of the community look like? Sure. Yeah. And in uh, you know, in my explanation, it'll it won't feel completely novel to especially your audience. But so much of our missional communities is developed around uh, relationally, what is God doing in each other's social networks? So, for instance, I, I live uh, uh, in a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood. Um, I'd say 75% of the kids in our, our, our schools are Spanish speaking or come from Spanish speaking homes. And so um, this is the and then we also have a high concentration of new arrivals from different countries, refugees. You can imagine recently from Afghanistan and now increasingly more Ukrainian refugees, but before that Nepalese, Bhutanese, 
um, in, in other parts of Africa. And so that, that tends to be the makeup of our neighborhood here in uh, Aurora, Illinois, where I, where I live. And so engagement for, for us, uh, you know, so f- on Friday, uh, our uh, part of our missional community, uh, we had uh, a gingerbread making thing for kids. And uh, so uh, I think all the families that came were Hispanic. And, you know, this, this wasn't a project that we were doing. We were just doing something in my living room with our neighborhood friends. Um, but then the conversations eventually become about, you know, uh, understanding what Christmas is and, you know, understanding kind of the, the Catholic. Uh, a lot of them are, are previously Catholic um, teachings on it. And so a lot of our conversations become about, you know, what, what does it mean for you as somebody who's not a Catholic? What do you understand Christmas to be? And that's just kind of the natural rhythm. Um, in one of our other missional communities, they, they were also doing an event. Uh, event sounds so formal. They were having people over at their home. Uh, they live in a neighborhood that is also has a high concentration of refugees, a Pakistani family. Um, these are just people in the neighborhood over and uh, very similar conversations. So as a Christian, what does Christmas holidays mean to you? Pakistani Muslim, obviously Christmas means something completely different to them. And so an exchange of life, an exchange of discussion, and then over time, an exchange of faith. That typically is like, you know, the the makings. And so, and this is us, you know, uh, I would say in some ways, if I view myself as a disciple maker, my wife and I, we're learning to help, you know, the 12 or 13 people in our missional community learn to develop these natural rhythms in their neighborhoods and in the communities so that like gingerbread making becomes an opportunity to share the gospel, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I love it. So this sort of thing is what excites me. This is, uh, this has kind of been like a burning passion, almost uh, desiring to see more and more people get engaged in their communities to serve others, to love, uh, to view these sort of things as normal, right? Like, like you said, it feels weird to call this an event, right? Like it's yeah. Just, yeah. And we wouldn't like something yeah, like exactly. We were just doing a Friday night thing, you know? Yeah. It's, and it just happened to be that. Yeah. Uh, so for those of us who are like me and sometimes are in a different context, sometimes the grass is greener on the other mm. side of that fence. So what are some of the things that, what are some obstacles that you have come up against through missional communities and the way that you guys are doing ministry uh, that you didn't really foresee uh, when you started that you have been like grappling with, working sure. with now that you're in it? Yeah, two things come to mind. One is polity, and then the other is just um, the um, uh, again the rhythms and, 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 and cadence. So with polity, you know, we we have a uh, a discipleship or leadership team, um, and so and it's it's pretty it's pretty flat in terms of the leadership structure. Um, so we don't have a a a leader or a, a pastor in a sense. Um, although we're pastoring the um, the various missional communities, um, and so you know that that doesn't make it easy. Sometimes it's easy to have um, you know the guy or the gal that makes the calls and and makes all the decisions. And so um, at times, you know, too too much deference can create you know. Uh, you know, a, 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 a slowness to the work, uh, but at the same time, we feel like there's great confirmation in team leadership 
Uh, and, and so, so that's been a part of it. I, I would say one of the other struggles when it comes to polity, and a part of this is just because we're two and a half years into it is, um, you know, um, when you're, when you're somewhat agile and there is, um, you know, there something happens off schedule or off, you know, comes, we, we had a, a very personal, um, issue happen in one of our members of our leadership team. And we just realized that that issue is going to dictate the pace of what we're doing right now. Um, in a different model of church, I think we would have said, Hey, you wanted to take some time out. We're going to keep going ahead. And when you're ready to jump in and you jump in. Um, and we specifically said, you know what, we're, we're going to experience this together. And this, if this slows things down, that's, that's fine. This is the pace in which we're going to go. And it was the right thing to do. And, and I feel like um, we serve that family well and those people well, you know, in terms of like uh, cadence and um, uh, frequency and rhythms, I think we probably need to get better at some of those things. I mean, we have our decentralized meetings and then monthly we have a training or a corporate gathering. Um, and so those tend to be the basic rhythms uh, for people. But it's frustrating, especially for church people. You know, when I say "quote unquote" church people, those who had really good Sunday attendance, like it's very frustrating for for those. And um, you know, I, I would say we don't have a lot of church attenders um, join us because there's no regular church to attend in their mind. Does that make sense? <laughs> oh, it totally makes sense. And uh, you know, um, I love church. Like in my mind, there is no like opposing dichotomy. Um, there's just energies. That's all it is. You have to give your energy to something. And we're choosing to give our energy over here. If we can do it all. I'd love to do it all. I love church in all forms. So this is fascinating. I'm so excited. I am so excited by what you guys are doing and and specifically that you're just continuing on. And, and I know, and I know because you reference like the Soma family of churches, like this isn't this isn't new. There's lots of people doing missional communities. There's lots of people trying to live this out in their context in whatever form that takes. At the same time, it's just so encouraging that there is still this focus on, okay, there is a different way. There, Church doesn't look the exact same in every context and in every city. Um, there's other ways to continue to faithfully chase after Jesus and bring others into that discipleship. Yeah. And I, and I, I'd say part of uh, the process of this conviction going deeper inside of our leadership team was probably July of 2020. Uh, we had been in a sense, uh, one missional community for about two months and still just primarily engaging neighbors. You know, if you remember back then, people were buying toilet paper for their neighbors and stuff like that. You remember that time, right? Oh, when yes, we were buying yes. toilet paper and it's, so, you know, that was, that's all we were doing. And then we made sure to get names of everybody on the block and we facilitated kind of like care, careless and care, care phone call this and all that stuff. And then in July, when that happened, it, you know, people were like, well, you can start gathering in various numbers and groups and stuff like that. I remember we tried doing one large group gathering and it wasn't like super large. I think there was maybe, 25 or 30 people that, that came to that. We rented a, a, a theater and um, it was kind of an equipping slash worship time. And um, I just remember like for the, our leadership team, at least um, 
how it was almost kind of like it was beautiful. We loved it. Fantastic time. Um, I remember how like easy it was to to do those types of things. And then I remember sitting uh, and looking at the people that had kind of just come around our communities and how easy it is for them to come and sit and observe. And I, I, and I remember how hard it was to get somebody to go across the street, get all their neighbors' names in order mm-hmm. to create a care list, you know. And that was much more difficult than having somebody set up a sound system or something like that. And it was kind of that point forward. We were like, you know, we're going to make sure that meeting your neighbor is never as hard as uh, it is doing a production. Wow. And so that, that really became a point of conviction for us. Wow, I love that. Yeah, isn't that funny? That that you know, crossing the street is such so much more difficult than it is to plug in a microphone. <laughs> yeah, and that's not to that's not to uh, downplay that. Sometimes the starting point for people is plugging in a microphone, but I think it became our conviction that there's two ways to build, and we're going to try to build this way. Yeah, yeah, neat, love it. That's very cool. Um, so aside from your context and the things that God has been doing in and through your community, again, because of your paying gig, uh, you know, the things that God has put you on the front lines for nationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess when you say North America, that technically means internationally, but um, what are some of the things that you have been observing in this season of the church? church planting in North America from your vantage point? Yeah, uh, two things for sure. So when we're talking about trends, two things, this is not me predicting the future. This is just a matter of fact uh, that every church planting organization, church planting leader, missionary uh, organization is going to have to navigate, is currently navigating, and maybe specifically in this next decade, one is the um, the adulting of Gen Z. And so the um, the oldest of Gen Z is now 25, 26. And, um, and uh, this is, uh, yeah, sometimes it's easy to kind of just pigeonhole, like, like, you know, to kind of say, oh, you know, uh, Gen Z and millennials, there really is no difference. It's just a matter of generational cohorts. And if you keep doing the right thing, then you'll be able to attract, you know, young people. Um, and part of me feels like that too. Part of me feels like, you know what, if you're doing the right thing, you're always going to be replenishing. You don't have to necessarily understand Gen Z so distinctly apart from millennials and Gen Xers and previous generations. But then I started, uh, noticing that, uh, those who were planting churches were getting older. Um, and, um, and I had that sense already. I, I do a lot of church planning assessments and, and church planting couples and church planting teams that come in. I just noticed that over the past, you know, 10 years that people seem to be more experienced and seem to be more uh, older. And there's a lot of reasons for that, I think. One is because I think we're looking for experienced people that are seasoned. And so that's going to necessitate an older church planter. But then uh, Warren Bird did a national uh, survey, the largest that we've ever had in North America. He surveyed 2000 church planters. Um, and, um, I asked him to query his data for this to, um, to find the median age for each year that he had surveyed. So his survey, the, the, those who had responded to his survey went as far back as 2007. And so he created a chart from 2007 to about 2021, 2022. 
And in 2007, the median age for a church planter was 32, 33. So that means the bulk of people who planted churches in 2007 were in their early 30s. Fast forward 15 years to 2022, the median age church planter was 42. Hmm. And so uh, almost a nine-year difference between the two. Um, and again, there's a lot of different reasons for why this is probably the case. Um, part of it is because, again, we're looking for more skilled people to plant churches. Uh, we're weeding people out on the front end. And sometimes those who don't yet have ministry experiences, you know, they're not planting churches. Um, and then there's other things like we have more mega churches today than we've ever had before. It's a very recent phenomena in, in, you know, in Christian history. Um, and, uh, so there's more positions for younger people to take on full-time paying jobs. And so remember, it used to be just the, the angsty Gen X youth pastor that was planning churches, uh, 15, 20 years ago. But, um, but I also think that the narrative around church planting is not translating from Gen X older millennials to the next generation. So for instance, like if you were to say church planting pipeline, that's going to make a lot of sense to Gen Xer. And it'll probably make some sense to a millennial. But by the time you get to a Gen Xer, or sorry, a Gen Zer, like they, they don't want to be a cog in your pipeline or a widget in your pipeline, right? So there's a language that we use to describe mission in the systems of mission that I think in some ways um, are that uh, the next generation is less interested in. Even the way that we talk about the challenges of the church, uh, church decline, right? That's an easy one. Um, you know, we talk about less and less people going to church. We talk about less Christian influence in the public uh, 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 sphere. And uh, to Gen Zers, and this is every every single poll, you know, whether it's Gallup, Barna, uh, Springtide Research, uh, Pew, uh, every Gen Zer is uh, less willing to affiliate with uh, this understanding of, of, of Christian society. And so to me, it's also a narrative issue. And so um, it, it's very complex. And I think that it's going to take, you know, several uh, decades for us to really imagine mission around a different uh, motif other than like the decline of Christianity in North America, because that's really reliant on, um, I think, the golden era of Christianity, which some tend to think it's 1950, 1960s because of um, of the rise of denominations during that time. So that's that's one factor, Gen Z. And then the second one, it'll be much faster. Um, just the, uh, the, the uh, continued increase of diversity. Um, and so... By 2040, U.S. Census projects that uh, we will not have a racial majority by then, which means that whites will be less than 50% of the population for the first time. And um, I think uh, there is there's not one mission organization, one church planning network, one denomination that I talk to that they don't think through this issue. How do we better reflect our constituency? But then also, how do we better reflect like the diversity happening outside of the church so that we might better reach them? And um, so it's not that this is new news, but I think it's become much more urgent for those who are leading because most of our networks and organizations are being led by young boomers or um, aging Xers. And in the next 10 years, we're going to see a transition of leadership of these organizations 
from boomers and Xers to older millennials and possibly even Gen Zers. And um, so that navigation of that transition is, is going to happen in 10 years. And so um, I think there's a lot of preparation that's happening in these organizations to make sure that those transi- transitions can happen well. What's the risk here, Daniel? Because, I mean, in one sense, it sounds to me that a part of the potential issue with the Gen Zer mm-hmm. is, you know, looking at a, a, um, a Christianity that's tremendously fragmented and mm-hmm. continuing to fragment and uh, a disillusionment with how fragmented we've become. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's probably uh, definitely a, a, a lagging indicator. Uh, you know, I think probably even more so than the disillusionment and uh, the fragmentation is um, the heavy burden that I think the the stayers or those who are remaining inside, you know, and let's just, I'm going to shrink the whole world of Christianity into like evangelical Americans. Let's, I'll just kind of make the qualify it. So those who will remain inside American evangelicalism and who will lead that um, for the next generation and the current generation that their burden is going to be like, you know, um, even so much more because, um, you know, they don't have a natural outlet to delegate leadership responsibility to uh, their institutions are seeing less and less dollars. And we, I see this in uh, Christian uh, academics. Um, and so I don't want to say it's an existential threat to institutions, but the average institutional leader feels like there's a potential existential threat to their organization. And so they, they can't even think about how do we start reaching other people because they're just trying to maintain what's in front of them. But also, Michael, I think one of the other things um, beyond disillusionment is, again, just the pragmatics of, of what we're talking about. Um, if, if we, we, we don't reimagine like the importance of, you know, capturing Gen Z's mind with the gospel and Jesus's mission, um, like, will we be okay? Maybe we will be, but will we be okay in 10 years if the average church planter was a 50 year old and maybe we will be like, maybe that's not an issue. Like I, and I, I'm definitely not trying to be an ageist. But I do think that those are things that we need to ask ourselves. Like if we don't consider what's happening, potentially by the time we get to, you know, 20, 30 something, um, the median age church planner could be a 50 year old. And what does that say about how we've uh, trained up the next generation? It seems to me that even from the way that you're dealing with this or talking about it, it really seems important asking the corollary question. If that continues to age up northward the average church planter is 50 years old the connected question must be and are they effective at training up disciples to train up disciples to train up disciples right is 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 the kingdom growing right because if our if our initial question is are our institutions continuing then we're asking a very poor lead question yeah um are we actually raising up disciple making disciples are people yeah. in a greater number and, and generationally too right just like you said like is gen z being reached do they get do they know jesus are they being changed by him mm-hmm. um if we're not asking that question and we're more concerned with just as you said institutional 
upkeep then yeah and it's interesting because i there are some things that happened during gen x that i don't know if we had ever seen in previous generations at least to the same degree so hear me i'm not blaming gen gen xers because they already felt blamed for a bunch of other things and that's that's like their identity known right? as gen x yeah. right so <laughs> but you see like during gen x it's you know, again we're shrinking everything down to like the evangelical church uh in in america uh, even then there's so many different streams but you see you see like interesting phenomena is like the, the rise of stadium youth gatherings right like this was a this was a big thing like whether it was acquire the fire or promise keeper type events which again was more men and and but there's also you know the stadium concerts and um you know the harvest crusades which would have you know in some sense uh would have been replicas of uh, like Billy Graham crusades and, and, um, but youth oriented stadium events, nothing wrong with them at all, but you see this rise of phenomena and then you see the rise of like youth pastors, right? And so probably in the seventies, eighties and nineties, you are seeing youth ministry explode. Um, the professionalization of youth ministry, it explodes. And, um, and I wish that it exploded because we needed we needed full-time people who made disciples that made disciples that made disciples that made disciples. But for most of us who were in youth ministry during that time, very few of us actually felt like that was what we were good at. We were all good at like doing youth programs. Draw a crowd. Entertain. And, and that made us really good church planters in the nineties and early two thousands to plant launch large models. Mm. Um, and um, again, not saying this is a, uh, you know, a, a, a consequence of it, but there's definitely some correlation there. And the way that we thought about how do we reach people, we reach people through like these mass venues, you know, and my, my venues were never that big, you know, I might have had 120, 100, maybe 200 youth at a time. But um, I do think, and then in that, you know, thank God there were leaders that we'd raised up and there were people who went on to be disciple makers and stuff like that. But it was never our primary mindset that like, um, you know, disciples that made disciples, uh, when I say we, like me and the cohort of church planters that I came up with in those slightly maybe five to 10 years ahead of me. And so, you know, we, we were, we did a great job helping to pioneer the launch large model and um and now we're you know probably about 30 years 40 years into that particular model if you go back to maybe hybels or were uh uh rick warren as the proliferators of that model we know 40 years now 43 years from saddleback and a little bit longer for willow creek we know that this model in some ways is not giving us the return on investment that we thought it it used to give right um, and so I think these are just things, these are dynamics, you know, I don't, I don't say these things to make value statements about them, but these are dynamics that we now have to translate, um, to Gen Zers cause they don't understand what, what happened underneath. They just see mega church pastors falling and imploding and, uh, churches amassing influence and wealth. Um, and, um, and so I think, you know, this, these are just dynamics that we have to, to, mm. to, to deal with in order to frame mission better for the next generation. Yeah. And it's, it, it, I mean, you make an interesting comment. They're seeing uh, church leaders, churches implode, churches acquiring massive wealth. 
and they're not seeing the correlating change that they're passionate about right uh, in society and that yeah that I mean, that's fascinating daniel yeah and i think uh you know we saw this come to head in things like you know the 2016 election and not just in politics but you know the the, the racial tensions you know the opinions about these things uh definitely have a generational um dynamic to it you know mm. so what yeah. are some of the things that you have been seeing you talk about the church multiplication institute doing what it can to talk about best practices mm -hmm. and it seems to me some of the things that i'm hearing from you are um in the adulting of gen z helping to equip and empower and release them into leadership mm -hmm. if i'm hearing this right so what are some some what are some encouraging things that you are seeing from churches in north america trying to engage in that yeah yeah and there are definitely encouraging uh, encouraging things um i so uh, a couple of things regarding like th there's that institutional approach so what your church planning network or an organization or a denomination and then there's kind of more the grassroots which is you know maybe a local church or maybe not even a local church but a local leader disciple maker you know from the uh more uh organizational perspective i do think that those who lead organizations are better in are, are getting better at telling a, a different story about mission and so um most of them can still have a little bit of that church decline narrative meaning that we need to plant more churches so that we can in a sense take back the culture and very few people would say it in those words but that's kind of like what's underneath it is we want to win back the culture the culture wars but i think many are beginning to reimagine better narratives around like embracing what god is doing in the world and that partially is because of things like the immigrant church that's arriving here in north america and so uh, immigrants that are come here that are already Christian, which by and large is the cause for growth for groups like the Assemblies of God. The Assemblies of God are mm -hmm. the only evangelical uh, denomination that's grown year after year for the last 30 years. And if you look at the racial and ethnic composition of the their growth, it is almost primarily um, through people of color and immigrants, specifically Hispanic people. And so um, if you look back 2009, there were one point, sorry, 2007 or so, there were about 1.8 million members of the Assemblies of God that were white. Their denomination has grown dramatically since then uh, in less than 20 years. And if you look at their population membership of white people today, it is still 1.8 million. It's not doesn't mean that they haven't added white people to the denomination. It just means that their noticeable noticeable growth has become almost completely from non-white and usually immigrants. And you know, again, so that that forces an organization to to not just say, you know, we need to plant more churches so that we can win back the culture. We we actually need to plant more churches because that's what God is doing. He's sending um, the church here. Yeah, I, I oftentimes use the phrase the arrival church. One in four uh, immigrants that come to the United States are already Christian. And so uh, Stephen Warner said, uh, he's a sociologist out of the University of Chicago. He says that immigrants is not the de-Christianization of uh, American Christianity. It's the de-Europeanization mm -hmm. of American Christianity. <clears throat> and so 
uh, I think that's a it's it's a dynamic that people are realizing, and especially amongst Hispanics, because uh, they have the largest number of youth population right now in America. That makes a huge difference. I just came back from El Paso and Juarez about a week and a half ago, and uh, that was very impactful for me to understand that dynamic. Uh, from the ground level, uh, Andrew, uh, what's also encouraging is uh, there are those who are trying to uh, uh, kind of as a leading indicator for what church growth means. People are starting to look at things like, uh, you know, how do we actually multiply like smaller expressions of church before we start really putting the emphasis on large group gatherings? So if the, the average church planter today, they probably still want to do some large group gathering. But before they do that, what they want to do is they want to start two, three small groups, four small groups to make sure that they're embedded in neighborhoods first, and then they'll start their their large group gathering. I think that's tremendously encouraging because that uh, uh, you, you build in a, a leadership development right off the bat, and the the value is on the neighborhoods and uh, the celebration service is the, kind of like this added you know uh, layer to it that is also you know beautiful but not just the only, um, the end all of ministry. So um, that, that's really encouraging to me. And um, I'd I love to tell a story of uh, Lyft Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Robin Waller is a software developer, came into the church when he was uh, a college student. He's, I think he's 32 or 33 right now. He's the lead pastor. And they're a church of uh, 40, 50 simple churches. And so uh, they meet uh, in and around uh, a few campuses in Ontario, and uh, they have simple churches, and they also gather in large group gatherings. But um, they're very engaged, and um, their 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 uh, forms of church is less rigid, um, and they're very effective at reaching the next generation. So that that really encourages me. My mind is like blowing, like I'm just I'm so excited to continue to think through the implications of the dreams, the visions, the uh, potential Hmm. of what God has put in the hearts of Gen Z that in a way uh, (laughs) akin to that prayer, it is beyond what I can imagine. And and part of it is as, uh, as I was once called, I definitely took it derisively, but, uh, a geriatric millennial is what I actually fall into. I um, I, I say I'm a zennial just to avoid that phrase. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. I'm just a plain geriatric. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is an aspect of truth that I have to come to grips with, which is sometimes I can't see what other people can see. And it's not a bad thing. But there are dreams and visions of what I have because God has brought me through these experiences. But there are almost different dreams and visions he's giving to the next generation that it is appropriate that they have them. And that for uh, uh, referencing the conversation we were having off mic ahead of time, that next generation needs to pick up that baton. They have to chase after God in their own way. Uh, not that he's changing, but that sometimes uh, we understand him differently and how and how he impacts those around us. Um, because again, what worked in 1950 is is very much not working right now, uh, mm. no matter how hard we keep trying. 
and uh and it i i i find that encouraging that gen z is kind of saying we're we have the boldness to say we really want to try this differently we we want to continue to chase after others and and just be faithful in this way yeah i agree with that and i i feel like that's because uh there is a bit of like relying on the holy spirit to fill in the gaps when we feel that the generational gaps are too big. I mean, I, I, the language that you're using, it reminds me of Acts chapter two, when Peter is quoting from Joel chapter two, where he says in the last days, you know, God will pour out his spirit in all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. And then your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And so I think oh, that's a really good, you know, uh, framework for us to understand, uh, things like revival, like it's multi-generational. It, it's a, it's a, it's a burden that both generations, um, you know, have to have to feel. And, and there's a coming up together for that. And that's why I do think those who lead mission organizations, uh, specifically in North America, I do see some encouragement around the interest of, Hey, how do we not just build something, um, that the next generation can maintain, but how do we tell a story and then how do we provide a platform so that the next generation can build? And I am seeing people create that shift in their head. You know, it's like they're less interested in putting Saul's armor on the next generation. And they're interested in like putting tools and resources so that the next generation can build. And uh, I think that's it's risky. It's risky, especially when you spend a lot of time trying to build something. But, you know, going back to Hebrews chapter 12, the things that will not remain, they will be blown away so that only the things that should remain will, will persist. That's Good a word. Yeah, I would say that's a beautiful reminder and an encouragement to just, uh, again, referencing what you said earlier, you only have so much time or so much energy. So where are you going to put that energy towards? Uh, I, I really think that that encouragement may be to make sure that our energies are rightly placed towards towards that are we helping that next generation the people around us are we spending our energy towards something that might be a little bit more holy spirit led where he is going to provide the what as opposed to spending our energies and times not into the tools but into the framework like we're mm. trying to build something we're trying to chase after something this is the framework that it has to look like and it has to work and the next generation is not even interested in our framework mm. uh, the future of the church isn't interested in what we've been toiling at that we thought was so important we must chase after it we must do this and perhaps the next generation uh the future of the church is saying so thank you thank you for your faithfulness um will pass on all your framework, <laughs> mm -hmm. but it's your faithfulness and it's, it's your willingness to chase after the Holy spirit and, and minister through the Holy spirit. We want that. We'll take mm -hmm. that. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. We'll go from here. Uh, Daniel, I had a few more questions, but it just, just feels like a good spot to uh, end our podcast today. Yeah. And um, I am I'm giddy. I am super excited uh, by what you have paid faithful witness to us uh, about the things that you have seen. Uh, so thank you so much for bringing uh, just your observations uh, from the front lines and all the different places that God has you. Um, appreciate you, man. 
Yeah, appreciate the work that you guys are doing and uh, physiology and all, all our friends that are connected to you. I think we're, we're all on the same team doing the same thing. So God bless you guys. Amen. That's fantastic. Amen. Uh, so that I won't botch it. If anybody does want to get connected to you and the Church Multiplication Institute, uh, where can they do so, Daniel? Yeah, so our socials are Church X. I-N-S-T, so Church X for Multiplication, I-N-S-T, Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, website, you can go to WheatonBillyGram.com, WheatonBillyGram.com. We're one institute uh, underneath the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. So That's fantastic. Well, please, y'all, uh, go connect with Daniel. Uh, follow him on Twitter and Instagram. I mean, you can go and find such wonderful photos as him dressed as Santa, uh, doing all he can to entertain those that God has, has given him to care for. Uh, for those of you uh, who are just coming into Ephesiology, uh, we would encourage you to go to Ephesiology.com, learn more about us, uh, even Masterclasses.Ephesiology. Master, is it Masterclasses or Masterclass? <laughs> Sorry, I had a, a brain fart there. Uh, but uh, go to masterclasses.ephesiology.com to see ways that you can kind of engage with what God might be doing in and through you in your context and how you can join the Holy Spirit and what he is doing. Uh, I am very excited that we had Daniel as our guest and I am thankful for you listening. And thank you to everybody for joining us today on the Ephesiology Podcast. <laughs>